So, so the idea really began to change then as to how can we give it away to the greatest number of people. And as Gail showed us, they decided to build a chain of hospitals. Now, this is in the midst of the Depression. Nobody's got a dime, but we're going to build this chain of hospitals all the way across the United States where any alcoholic that needs to be detoxed can go in. In those days, you could hardly get in a hospital to be detoxed for, for alcoholism. And I'd almost bet money that Dr. Bob was going to be the head doctor, too. <laughs> and they decided this information, not just everybody would be able to carry it. So what they really needed to do was hire and train a group of missionaries to send them out across the country carrying this great message of recovery. And I'll bet money Bill Wilson was going to be the head missionary just as sure as anything. And then somebody said, well, you know, this information we've got that we've developed in the last two years, we've been carrying it by word of mouth one to the other. It's already becoming garbled. And sooner or later, if we keep carrying it just by word of mouth, it'll become changed to the point where it'll be of no good to anybody. What we really need to do is put it down in the written form so that the alcoholics in the future will have it as we know it today, referring back there to 1937. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride, take what you want, and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hear ye, hear ye. That was the voice of Joe, of the tandem Joe and Charlie that you heard at the beginning of this episode. And you will be hearing much more from them in just a moment on this here episode number 251 of Sober Speak. But first things first, this here episode is brought to you by Kate and David and Michelle and Marie. What did Kate and David and Michelle and Marie do, you asked, to deserve such a mention at the beginning of this episode? Well, they went to our website, www.soberspeak.com, and they clicked on the little yellow donate tab, and they made a, a contribution. So thank you so much, Kate and David and Michelle and Marie. This episode is coming right out to Ewan's. Hope everybody here in the United States, at least, is uh, making it through the well in other parts of the world. I know not just the United States, but 
It is, uh, as my dad from Tennessee always says, hotter than blue blazes. And you know what? I don't know if the blue blazes are the hottest of all the blazes, including the yellows and the reds, but I would assume so since I guess those blue blazes are what you see in the middle of the fire or whatever the case may be, but it's hotter than blue blazes and I hope everybody is uh, making it through okay. We, when I say we sober speak, is here to... Share some experience and strength and hope and hopefully hopefully provide you with uh, some uh, spiritual guidance, if you will, and um, have you not thinking about the craziness that is in the world right now and have you focus in on just now, right here, today. One day at a time, and uh, I am glad that you are all here. I know that there are so many other things that you could be doing with your time, and I appreciate that you guys tune in and listen to my silly little uh, podcast. All right, now on to Mr. Joe and Charlie. So, Joe and Charlie, uh, by the way, I've been recently, you know, uh, in fact, somebody wrote in at one point, they said, you just ought to, you know, at least quarterly or maybe monthly, uh, feature some, uh, some of the old classics, if you will. And, um, and, and I've been doing that intermittently. It's not been on any sort of particular schedule, like quarterly or whatever the case may be. Uh, recently featured a Sandy Beach in one of his talks, and we got tons of good feedback on that. Um, and this is Joe and Charlie. Um, they are, okay, so when I pull out my big book, I still have tons, tons of notes from the cassette tapes that I listened to at the time of Joe and Charlie. Uh, they, these guys, by the way, Joe and Charlie are not with us anymore. Uh, Joe uh, died in 2007, I believe, and Charlie died in 2011. They're actual real names, and they've gone on to the big meeting in the sky, obviously, are Joe McQuainy and Charlie Parmley. And they, and you know what? I just thought about something. I think I just introduced that this uh, uh, podcast is saying that that was Joe's name on the beginning, but it may have been Charlie. And I'm so sorry. I need to go back and check my facts before I start these things, right? But nonetheless, Joe and Charlie, what they did is, well, they met in 1973, I believe, and then they spent 30 years or so spreading the big book comes alive message. So I'm going to call this big book comes alive part one. I I will feature more of them as time goes on. Um, but I'm not going to do it back to back to back. I'll, I'll give you a little chance to kind of digest this. And what I have figured out is that 
I know Joe and Charlie, right? Um, I would say a good majority of the people in Alcoholics Anonymous know who Joe and Charlie are and in Al-Anon and in Overeaters Anonymous and a lot of other 12-step programs. But we have new people coming to this all the time and they don't know about Joe and Charlie. Uh, these guys, they were able to back in the mid-1970s and moving forward, take something the big book that was or, or, or still can be hard to understand. They gave lots of great examples. Um, they explained it uh, in a way that even guys like me could understand. Uh, they made it as their talk was titled The Big Book Comes Alive. They made it come alive. And it was really one of the first times for me that I was able to sit down and go, oh my gosh, this is what this is saying. This is absolutely fantastic. So um, by the way, if you don't want to wait to hear the rest of their story uh, in, in future podcast, not not their story, but their 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 workshop called called the Big Book Comes Alive. If you don't want to wait to hear it, you can just go to the internet and search up Joe and Charlie, the Big Book Comes Alive, and you can find it all over the place, right? Um, and but I do want to warn you that uh, I guess this is a warning uh, that. There are hard stops in here, and there are times where it seems like it's going to be ending. There are some blank spots, uh, but overall, the recording, the audio is pretty good. And you'll notice that at the end of this episode, it just cuts off. And then I will start it up where it left off uh, uh, next time we have Joe and Charlie uh, on the podcast. So... Just keep that in mind. Uh, it's, uh, it's how these um, uh, recordings and CDs are available. It's a long story. Um, but nonetheless, I'm sure that you are going to enjoy Joe and Charlie, The Big Book Comes Alive, uh, Part 1. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please welcome Joe and Charlie. And we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this episode. Enjoy. But my name is Joe, and I'm an alcoholic. And it's truly by God's grace and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that comes from a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm sober today, and for that I'm very, very thankful. And I'd like to read the preamble, please. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and to help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We're self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy. Neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. And I'm very excited about being here this weekend. Are you? Yeah. Oh, good, good. We're going to have a lot of fun. I'm going to tell you a little story before we kick it off about this little duck. He goes into the grocery store and he asks for the produce manager. He walks over to the produce manager and said, do you have any grapes this morning? The produce manager said, no, we're out of grapes. So the next day he walks in there and he said, do you have any grapes this morning? He said, no, we don't have any grapes. The next morning he walks in and he said, do you have any grapes? He said, I've told you twice now, we don't have any grapes. One more time, I don't have any grapes. 
If you come in here one more time looking for grace, I'm going to staple your feet to the floor. <laughs> so the next morning he walks in. He said, do you have any staples? He said, no. So you got any grapes? <laughs> My friend Charlie. Are you through? Mm-hmm. My name is Charlie Parman. I'm a very grateful recovering alcoholic. Because I'm a member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And with the grace of the power that I found in the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink for 13,134 days today. One day at a time, and for this I'm very grateful. Great to see you guys. You look great. You know, I'm really, really happy to be back up in this part of the country and and see a lot of old friends that, that I've known for years and years and years. It really amazes me when these things take place. I'm glad to be up here to be able to meet a lot of new friends. Um, and those of you I haven't met yet, I I sure want to shake your hand before the weekend's over. So please, please be sure and and come up to us wherever we are and introduce yourselves and let's shake hands and make each other welcome. We're really, really glad to be here. I like to tell a little joke myself once in a while, and and uh, we try to do this to get some humor started and 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 keep keep people laughing once in a while. And and if we tell a joke and it isn't funny, go ahead and laugh anyhow. <laughs> Makes us feel better, makes you feel better, and makes everybody else feel better. And the story I like to talk about, many of you have heard it before, is a, is about the brain surgeon. And the brain surgeon developed a way to transplant the human brain in its entirety. Been doing it with other organs of the body for years. He found a way to do it with the brain. And this older fellow went to him and said, Doc, I've got a problem with my brain. I can't think and I can't remember and I can't figure things out. Do you think you might be able to help me? The surgeon said, well, let's give you a physical exam first and see what kind of shape your body's in. So he gave him a good physical, and he said, oh, yeah, your body's in great shape. He said, I believe I could transplant a brain in your head, and everything would be just fine. The old man said, well, what do you have to offer? And the surgeon said, let's go up in the display room, and I'll show you what we have in stock at the present time. They go up in the display room, and he said, in this case over here, I have the brains of an attorney. And he said, I could transplant this in your head, and I'm sure it would be all right, and it'll cost you $20,000. The old man said, well, do you have anything else? And the surgeon said, oh, yeah. In this case over here, I have the brains of a doctor. He said, I could transplant this in your head. I'm sure everything would be great. It'll cost you $50,000. The old man said, well, do you have anything else? And he said, oh, yeah. In this case over here, I've got the brains of an alcoholic. He said, I could transplant this in your head. Everything would be great. It'll cost you $100,000. The old man said, I don't understand this deal. 20000 for the attorney's brain, 50000 for the doctor's brain, and 100000 for the alcoholic's brain? The surgeon said, why, hell yes, man. It's brand new. It's never been used before. <laughs> I think most of us will go to the grave with about 50,000 miles left on the original warranty. We never did touch, you know. Gail, thank you for that presentation.
I've seen a lot of presentations on AA history, and I don't mind saying right here in front of God and all these people, that's the best I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. He did a good job. She has retired from school teaching. She loves to travel. And I have a feeling she's getting ready to start doing a lot of it, too. When people start hearing about this and seeing about it, you're going to be a very busy lady. That's great. We always like to say as we start one of these things that we do not consider ourselves to be the gurus of the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous. Don't consider ourselves to be the experts on anything at all. We're just two old drunks. Met together several years ago. Found we had a mutual interest in the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous. We studied it together for quite some time. Hopefully we've learned a few things about it. And those few things we've learned about it, we just love to be able to share them with other people. We do not attempt to speak for AA as a whole. And you are most certainly free to agree or disagree with anything that we say throughout the entire weekend, as you see fit. In fact, if you hear us saying things that can't be reconciled with what's in the big book, we suggest you just don't pay any attention to those things at all. (laughs) And we'll try to keep most of our comments centered on the book itself. We are fully aware of the fact that the mind will only absorb about what the rear end will stand. And some of these sessions do become quite long. And if you feel the need to get up and walk around a little bit, please feel free to do that. That's not going to bother us at all. If you feel the need to go smoke a cigarette, get a cup of coffee, please feel free to do that. That's not going to bother us. Or if you feel the need to go get rid of a cup of coffee, (laughs) please feel free to do that. There's no sense in anybody sitting there suffering in, in silence. And we're going to try to keep this thing just as informal as we possibly can. Now, I don't know about you guys, but Joe and I intend to have a good time. And hopefully you're going to have a good time, too, during the weekend. That's what we're all after. By the way, we're not going to take a break tonight because we'll just be here too late. So we're going to try to go all the way through to the, the doctor's opinion before we finish tonight. Okay. Now, uh, Gail gave us a, a, a good rundown on the history of the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, We always like to go back and look at just a little bit of that history ourselves. And if we can really see and understand what these first AA people had to go through before the Big Book was written and while it was being written, I think it will make it a lot easier to understand the book itself. So we're going to look at a little bit of the history that comes right out of the book And if you guys are ready, let's go to uh, Roman numeral number 15, XV, and let's go to the last paragraph on that page, and we'll spend just a few minutes talking about a little bit of our history behind the book. There's one thing that helped me when I noticed this in Bill's writings, and he does the same thing in all of his writings. So anytime you're reading things about that Bill wrote, he does three particular things each and every time. First of all, he'll tell us what the problem is. He'll give us a solution to that problem. Then he'll give us a practical program of action to implement the solution that he just, talk, just described. He does it over and over and over. Lack of power, that was my dilemma for a second. Can you hear me now? Okay. 
Bottom of the page, Roman numeral page 15. The spark that was to flare in the first AA group was struck at Akron, Ohio, in June 1935 during a talk between a New York stockbroker and an Akron physician. Of course, we know the New York stockbroker is this fellow named Bill Wilson. I think we're treating him pretty good when we called him a New York stockbroker. He really wasn't. He was a New York City stock speculator. He made his living out of selling fast, talking to slow-thinking people. We don't want to take anything away from Bill Wilson. He was a great man. But we all need to understand he's a real alcoholic, just like all the rest of us. And he thought and he acted the same way all we alcoholics do. Of course, we know the Akron physician. It's this doctor named Dr. Bob Smith who lived in Akron, Ohio. Now, six months earlier, the broker had been relieved by his drink obsession by a sudden spiritual experience following a meeting with an alcoholic friend who had been in contact with the Oxford groups of that day. Later on, when we get into Bill's story, we're going to see where Bill had a meeting with an alcoholic friend, a fellow named Abby Thatcher. And Abby Thatcher was an old school friend buddy of Bill's. They did a lot of drinking together. And Abby Thatcher came to Bill in Bill's kitchen and gave him what turned out to be two very vital pieces of information. Abby said to Bill, Bill, people like you and I that have become absolutely powerless over alcohol, if we're going to recover from that condition, we're going to have to do it through the aid of a power greater than human power. He said, we've all tried all human powers, the doctors, the ministers, and etc., and it hadn't worked for any of us. And he said, I've been attending meetings with a group of people called the Oxford Groupers. And they told me that if I could have a vital spiritual experience, that during that vital spiritual experience, I would find the power greater than human power. He said, also, Bill, they have outlined a practical program of action. And they promised me that if I would imply that practical program of action in my life, that I would find that power and I would be able to overcome my alcoholism. And he said, look at me, Bill. I've been sober for two months. And this made a great impression on Bill because he knew about Abby Thatcher and he knew I had how Abby drank. And he always said, if I ever get as bad as Abby Thatcher, I'm going to quit drinking. <laughs> and here's Abby Thatcher sitting in Bill's kitchen, stone cold sober, and Bill is about two-thirds drunk himself at that time. And what Abby really gave to Bill, first he gave him the solution to alcoholism, the vital spiritual experience during which we find the power greater than human power. Then he also gave him the practical program of action necessary to be able to find or have that vital spiritual experience. So two of the things that Bill had to know came to him through Abby Thatcher coming out of the Oxford groups themselves. But there was some other information that Bill had to know in order to recover from alcoholism. He had also been greatly helped by the late Dr. William D. Silkworth, a New York specialist in alcoholism, who is now a kind of no less than a medical saint by AA members and whose story of the early days of our society appears in the next pages. From this doctor, the broker learned the grave nature of alcoholism. Again, when we get into Bill's story... We're going to see where as far back as the summer of 1933, Bill was placed in the town's hospital in New York City for withdrawal from alcohol by Dr. Silkworth. 
And after Bill's mind had cleared a little bit, Dr. Silkworth sat down with Bill and began to explain to him these ideas that he had gained about alcoholism. And he said, Bill, I do not believe alcoholism is a matter of willpower. I do not believe it's a matter of moral character. And he said, I don't think sin's got anything to do with it. He said, I really believe people like you are suffering from an illness. And he said, it's a very peculiar illness. It's a twofold illness, an illness of the body as well as an illness of the mind. And he said, through my experiences with working with many people like you, I have become convinced that your body reacts differently when you put alcohol in your system. He said, I really believe that when you put any alcohol, whatever, into your body, it produces an actual physical craving that demands more of the same. And he said that craving is so strong that it's beyond your ability to control the amount you're going to drink after you once start drinking. And he said, because of this physical craving, you will never again be able to safely drink alcohol. But he said, that's only half of your problem. He said, I also believe that people like you have developed what we call an obsession of the mind. And he said, an obsession of the mind is an idea that overcomes all ideas to the contrary. And he said, an obsession of the mind is an idea that is so strong, it can make you believe a lie or believe something that isn't true. And he said, now the truth is you can't safely drink alcohol. And said, from time to time, you know you can't safely drink alcohol. And from time to time, you swear off drinking, saying that you'll never take another drink as long as you live. But he said, after a while, your mind begins to think about taking a drink. And the next thing you know, you've convinced yourself that it's okay to drink. And then you'll take a drink, and then you'll trigger the craving, and then you'll end up drunk all over again. He said, you can no longer safely drink because of your body, nor can you stay sober because of the obsession of the mind. Therefore, you have become absolutely powerless over alcohol. And for the first time in his life, Bill Wilson understood his problem. You see, he always thought it was willpower. He thought it was moral character. He thought it was sin. Why would he not? That's what everybody had told him up until that time. And when Dr. Silkworth gave him his information regarding this physical craving and this obsession of the mind, for the first time, Bill understood his problem. And he said, now that I know what's wrong with me, I'll never have to drink again. Self-knowledge will fix it. (laughs) And we know that shortly after Bill left that hospital, his mind told him it's okay to drink took a drink, triggered the allergy. A year later, 1934, in the summer, back in the town's hospital for the second time. And this time, Dr. Silkworth pronounced him incurable and told Bill's wife, Lois, this guy is going to die during DTs or he's going to become a wet brain within a short period of time. And Bill overheard that. And he said fear sobered him up for a bit when he left the hospital. But on Armistice Day, 1934, his mind told him it's okay to drink. And he took a drink and triggered the craving and couldn't stop. And this is when Ebby came to see him. So self-knowledge didn't fix the problem. 
It's very important that we know and understand the problem, but knowing about it doesn't fix it. It's only when Abby brought him the solution, the vital spiritual experience, the program of action from the Oxford group, that Bill was able to apply that program, had a spiritual experience, and recovered from alcoholism. So basically, he had to know three things. What is the problem? What is the solution? And what is the program of action? And based on that, he could recover from alcoholism. Heavy began to take Bill to these Oxford group meetings, and Bill liked the Oxford group meetings. He really did. But a book said that though he could not accept all the tenets of the Oxford group, he was convinced of the need of moral inventory, confession of personality defects, restitution to those harmed, helpless to others, and the necessity of belief in and dependence upon God. He liked that idea about helping other people. But prior to his journey to Akron, his broker had worked hard with many alcoholics on the theory that only an alcoholic could help an alcoholic. But he succeeded only in keeping sober himself. So Bill set about to help all these alcoholics that he could find. He began to go up and down the streets and sing them up out of the gutter, take them to the Oxford group meetings. Sometimes he'd even go into a bar and pull them off the bar stool and take them to the Most of them didn't want to go. But Bill was taking them anyhow. Because trying to help other people stay sober was helping Bill. And after about six months of this activity, he went back to uh, Lois and said, Lois, no one seems to want what I have. And she said, well, I don't understand, Bill, but uh, obviously you're trying to help those people help you stay sober. So maybe you talk to Dr. Silkworth. Maybe he can give you some ideas on that. So he went to see Dr. Silkworth and told him, said, I've been trying to help all these drunks stay sober, but nobody seems to want what I have. And Dr. Silkworth said, yeah, Bill, I've heard of some of those shenanigans you're pulling out there on the street. You're trying to shove that great spiritual experience down the throat of an alcoholic, and they just won't buy it. He said, why don't you do for them what I did for you? Why don't you talk to them about the illness of alcoholism? Explain to them about the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. And if they will accept that, then maybe you can talk to them about your spiritual pleasures that you had. He said, Bill, every alcoholic I know has two questions. Number one, why can't I drink like I used to without getting drunk? And number two, why can't I quit drinking now that I want to quit? And he said, if you will explain to them this craving that occurs in the body after you have a drink, if you will explain to them the obsession of the mind, you'll get their attention. And he said, after you get their attention, then you can talk to them about spirituality. And we don't think it's by accident that the very next person that Bill talked to happened to be Dr. Bob in Akron, Ohio. And we know that Bill had gone there on a business venture, and we know the business venture fell through, and Bill's in the lobby of the Mayflower Hotel, and all of his business partners had left him, counting the money in his pocket and didn't even have enough money to pay the hotel bill, low, sad, and depressed. And he looked through the door off the lobby into the bar. And I would imagine that the lights were low in the bar. The smoke was probably thick. The laughter was great. And surely they had a jukebox going in there and a little music playing. And Bill said, I believe I'll go in there and I'll be with people of my kind. And I'll feel better. But as he started to go through the door, his mind said, Bill, you can't do that. If you go in there, you're going to drink. And if you drink, you're going to be in serious, serious trouble. So in desperation, 
Bill made a few phone calls, came in contact with this lady named Henrietta Cyberly, and said, I'm a rumhound from New York, and I need an alcoholic to talk to here in Akron to keep from getting drunk myself. Do you know anybody? And she said, oh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. She said, we have a doctor here, a well-known doctor, and a serious, serious case of alcoholism. Let me see if I can get hold of him, and I'll set up a meeting for you. And we know that Henrietta called Dr. Bob's house and talked to Ann, and told Ann about this guy from New York City that might have an answer to alcoholism. Can you bring Dr. Bob over here, and we'll have a meeting here for him? And she said, I would love to. But she said, you know, tomorrow is Mother's Day. And said, he's brought me home a potted plant, and he's potted under the kitchen table. (laughs) She said, I'll try to get him over there tomorrow. So the next morning, she gets Dr. Bob up and tells him about all this great deal. And Dr. Bob don't want to go over there. He's, He's hung over. He's sick. He's not feeling good at all. And he said, I'm not about to go over there. And she said, oh, yeah, you are. And he said, no, I'm not. And she said, oh, yes, you are. And maybe this is where Al-Anon really started. I have no idea. (laughs) But finally, finally, Dr. Bob said, I'll go over there and I'll give that guy 15 minutes of my time and then I'm coming home. And we know they went over there and sat down in a room by themselves. And five hours later, they came out of that room. And Dr. Bob said, this is the first man that I've ever talked to that knows what he's talking about when it comes to alcoholism. Now, why would he say that? Because he was able, through the sharing of his own experiences and through the knowledge that he had learned from Dr. Silkworth, he was able to help Dr. Bob see what his problem was. See, Dr. Bob knew the solution. He was a member of the Oxford groups. He was trying to have a spiritual experience. He was trying to apply their program of action, but he had never been able to apply it to the depth necessary to recover until Bill Wilson sat down with him and didn't talk about Dr. Bob's drinking at all. He said, let me tell you about my drinking. And he began to share his own story with Dr. Bob. And he talked about the many, many times he stopped off in the speakeasy and going to have a couple of drinks and then go home and have dinner. And he said something would happen and I'd be unable to stop drinking and I may not get home that night or the next day or the next night either. Dr. Bob said, my God, man, that's what's been happening to me. And Bill said, well, there's a little doctor in New York City that explained this thing to me and he said it's an actual physical craving that alcohol produces in our body. And because of that, we can't control the amount we drink after we once start. He continued to talk about the many, many times that he had sworn off drinking. He said, now I've got a tremendous amount of willpower. I've been able to do anything I wanted to do in my entire lifetime. But said when it comes to alcohol, from time to time, willpower is non-existent. He said, I may wake up one morning with a terrible hangover and swear I'm never going to take another drink as long as I live. And by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm sitting in the bar half drunk, Wondering how I got Dr. Bob said, my God, man, that's what's been happening to me. And Bill explained to him from Dr. Silkworth the idea of the obsession of the mind. And because of that, we're absolutely powerless over alcohol. Now, our book says 
This physician had repeatedly tried spiritual means to resolve his alcoholic dilemma, but had failed. But when the broker gave him Dr. Silkworth's description of alcoholism and its hopelessness, the physician began to pursue the spiritual remedy for his malady with a willingness he had never before been able to muster. He sobered never to drink again up to the moment of his death in 1950. Now this seemed to prove that one alcoholic could affect another as no non-alcoholic could. Through Bill sharing his story with Dr. Bob, Dr. Bob could see what his problem really was because he identified with Bill immediately. It also indicated that strenuous work, one alcoholic with another, was vital to permanent recovery. Bill Wilson didn't go see Dr. Bob to sober up Dr. Bob. Bill Wilson went to see Dr. Bob to keep Bill Wilson from getting drunk. And thank God it worked. And Bill stayed sober, and Dr. Bob got sober. So it proved the very two things our whole fellowship is built upon. That one alcoholic could affect another as no non-alcoholic could, and then working with another alcoholic is vital to our own recovery. It's been going on ever since then. So the Institute men set to work almost frantically upon alcoholics arriving in the ward of the Akron City Hospital. One night, Dr. Bob said to Bill, and Bill, by the way, had moved in with Dr. Bob and stayed there about three months. He said, by the way, uh, Bill, if we're going to get, do this thing, we better get busy. He said, get busy doing what? He said, well, you said helping drunks would help us. I need, let's find some drunks to work with. He said, I don't know any drunks in Akron, do you? And he said, well, no, not really, but I know a nurse down at the Akron City Hospital. Surely she'll know a drunk that we could work with. So he called up the head nurse and asked her if, asked her if she knew of a drunk that they could work with. said, yeah, we've got a corker. Got him strapped down to his bed there in the ward of the Akron City Hospital back. Some of you all may know what a ward is in those days. Is When you couldn't afford a private room or a semi-private room, they'd put you at the end of the hall with some screens around you. If it looked like you were going to die, they would take you off the ward and put you in a private room. So Dr. Bob said to this lady, do you have this drunk? He said, yes, I do. We want to come down. We've got this fellow from New York who seems to have a solution for alcoholism. We want to try it out on this fellow. She said, oh, wait, by the way, Dr. Bob, have you tried this solution on yourself? Because <laughs> yeah. she knew that he had a drinking problem, too. And he said, yes, I have, and I'm staying sober. So they put this guy on the ward, took him off the ward, and put him in the private room. And the next day, Bill and Bob show up to visit. Now, here comes these two guys along, and they both now know three things. They both know what the problem is. They both know the solution. They're both applying the program of action, and both, all, both of them have recovered from alcoholism. The book says, Hence the two men set to work almost frantic upon alcoholics arriving the ward at the Akron City Hospital. Their very first case, a desperate one, recovered immediately and became AA number three. And Gail had his picture beforehand, and he's sitting down here in front of us, the man on the bed. And this is Bill and Bob sitting there talking to this fellow named Bill Dotson. And they didn't talk to Bill Dotson about Bill Dotson's drinking. They talked to Bill Dotson about their own drinking. And through the sharing of their story, they transmitted the information that they had received from Dr. Silkworth about this physical craving of the body and the obsession of the mind, and Bill Dodson immediately identified with them. After they got his attention, they talked to him about spirituality. They talked to him about the need 
for the vital spiritual experience. They talked to him about the program of action as they had applied it in their lives and that they had recovered from alcoholism. Two days later, Bill Dotson says to his wife, Get my clothes out of the closet, I'm going home. And he got up and he dressed and he went home. He applied this little program of action coming out of the Oxford groups, had a vital spiritual experience, sobered up, never to drink again up to the moment of his death. This work at Akron continued through the summer of 1935. There were many failures, but there was an occasional heartening success. You know, when we look back at that period of time, we've got to realize that in the summer of 1935, these guys really didn't know very much about what they were doing. Just about everything that they tried was something brand new. And they would try something, and if it, if it worked, then they would, they would keep it. If it didn't work, they would discard it. You know, one of Dr. Bob's favorite things was to fill them up with sauerkraut juice mixed with honey. And the sauerkraut juice had the, had the vitamins and stuff in it necessary to help the body, and the honey made it possible to drink the damn stuff. You know? <laughs> Every once in a while, one of these guys would fall over dead. I can almost see Bill turn to Bob and say, oh shit, let's don't try that again. You know? <laughs> And as we look back at that period of time, I think we need to give credit to those that they failed with that summer, too. <laughs> they probably learned more from their failures than they did from their successes. When the broker returned to New York in the fall of 1935, the first AA group had actually been formed, though no one realized it at the time. What he left behind him in Akron was a few individuals staying sober. They were members of the Oxford group. And they were called the alcoholic group of the Oxford group or the drunk squad of the Oxford group. And they always had problems from the very beginning. The Oxford group was really not into the business of sobering up drunks. What they really wanted to do was work with the more elite members of society like Firestone Sun or like the mayor or like the governor and etc. And they were really not too interested in working with alcoholics. They were having a hard time with the alcoholics because the alcoholics would go to the Oxford group meetings and tell dirty jokes <laughs> and smoke cigarettes and drop ashes on the floor and spill coffee and all that kind of stuff. And the Oxford groupers had this thing called the four absolutes. And you were to practice absolute love, absolute purity, absolute honesty, and absolute unselfishness. And the drunks were having a hell of a time being absolute anything except drunks. (laughs) So they had a little friction from the very, very beginning, and that's why they really started calling them the alcoholic squad or the drunk squad of the Oxford group. By late 1937, the number of members having substantial sobriety time behind them was sufficient to convince the membership that a new light had entered the dark world of the alcoholic. The people began to stay sober. Not only in New York, in Akron, Cleveland, people around were staying sober. They began to think that maybe, just maybe, possibly they might have this answer to the age-old question of alcoholism. A new light had entered the dark world of the alcoholic. A second small group promptly taken shape in New York. And besides, they were scattered alcoholics who picked up the basic ideas in Akron and New York and were trying to form other AA groups. No AA group at that time, just a drunk squad of the Oxford group. 
It was now time that struggling groups sought to place their message and unique experience before the world. This determination bore fruit in the spring of 1939 by the publication of this volume. And Gail did a great job with this. And she talked about the history, and we know they met together. Bill was back there in Akron in 1937, and Bill was visiting with Dr. Baum. And, and they counted the number of people they were staying sober. And there was a few of them in Akron. There was a few starting to come in up in Cleveland and a few back in New York. Bill had gone back to New York, and when he did, he applied there what he learned to do with Dr. Bob, and sure enough, people started sobering up in New York. And they counted approximately 40 people staying sober on these three little pieces of information. And I think maybe for the first time they began to realize, you know, we really, we really might have found the answer to this thing called alcoholism. And if we found the answer to it, then what are we going to do about it? You know, they could have decided that they were going to franchise it there in Akron and, and sell the thing just as well as, as anything else. Everybody was broke in those days. Everybody was trying to make money. And Bill and Bob hashed it around, and maybe, maybe this is the beginning of, of, of the group conscience because they decided that they didn't really want to make that decision. And they called a meeting where there was approximately 18 people at that meeting. And the purpose of the meeting was, is, you know, if this thing is really working, what are we going to do with this information? Are we going to hold it for ourselves selfishly? Are we going to try to sell it? Are we going to try to give it away? And what are we going to do? And coming out of the Oxford groups, there was the idea that if you're going to keep this stuff, you've got to give it away. You're going to have to give it to other people. So, so the idea really began to change then as to how can we give it away to the greatest number of people. And as Gail showed us, they decided to build a chain of hospitals. Now this is in the midst of the depression. Nobody's got a dime, but we're going to build this chain of hospitals all the way across the United States where any alcoholic that needs to be detoxed can go in. In those days, you could hardly get in a hospital to be detoxed for, for alcoholism. And I'd almost bet money that Dr. Bob was going to be the head doctor too. <laughs> and they decided this information, not just everybody would be able to carry it. So what they really needed to do was hire and train a group of missionaries to send them out across the country carrying this great message of recovery. And I'll bet money Bill Wilson was going to be the head missionary just as sure as anything. And then somebody said, well, you know, this information we've got that we've developed in the last two years, we've been carrying it by word of mouth one to the other. It's already becoming garbled. And sooner or later, if we keep carrying it just by word of mouth, it'll become changed to the point where it'll be of no good to anybody. What we really need to do is put it down in the written form so that the alcoholics in the future will have it as we know it today, referring back there to 1937. And then he said, you know, the Oxford groupers have written several spiritual books, and they sell quite good. And back in the 1930s, books did sell good. That was in the days before TV. Uh, yeah, yeah, there was a time before TV. There really was. <laughs> and, and, and they said, you know, if we could write a good book, really explaining what alcoholism is as we know it, and really explaining what the solution to it is as we know it, and really outlining the program of action as we know it, 
then this would be the first book ever written, first comprehensive book ever written on alcoholism and recovery therefrom, and surely, surely it would become one of the world's bestsellers. And then we could take the profits from the book. And then we could build the hospitals. And then we could hire and train the missionaries. Well, thank God the book is the only thing that came out of it. As we all know, the book didn't sell very good. And for years and years, they didn't have any money. Therefore, we never did build the hospitals, nor did we hire and train the missionaries. And it turns out we didn't have to, did we? Because we got hospitals all over the United States and Canada and all over the world now that are detox alcoholics. And we got counselors working in all of those areas, which would have been Bill's job as a head missionary to carry that message to all those people. So we didn't have to do that, but we did write the book. And Thank this, God we did. So the membership had then reached about 100 men and women. Well, after they had the book written and they decided to title the book and call it a book, it ought to have a, it ought to have a name. Gail mentioned that earlier that one of the names they considered was The Way Out and found that there was some... 11 or 12 other titles called The Way Out, but decided not to use that one. Uh, someone said, well, let's call it Comes the Dawn. Great title. Sounds like a good title for a book, doesn't it? Comes the Dawn. And they considered that and decided, kicked that out. And Somebody said, well, let's call it 100 Men. Yeah. Yeah, the guys like that. Boy, 100 Men. Doesn't that sound like a title, a good title for a book? Well, then a woman joined the group. <laughs> well, they couldn't call it 100 Men and a Woman, so they kicked that out. Bill said, well, let's just call it the Bill W. Movement. <laughs> that didn't last long. And as the story goes, somebody said, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Anonymous Alcoholics. That kind of took hold. Alcoholics Anonymous. So the very first Alcoholics Anonymous the world has ever seen was a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And in that book called Alcoholics Anonymous was a story of the first hundred men and women to show us precisely how they recovered from alcoholism. That was the purpose of the book. And then it says, this fledgling society, this drunk squad of the Oxford group, which had been nameless now, began to be called Alcoholics Anonymous from the title of its own book. So we have two Alcoholics Anonymous, don't we? We have a book called Alcoholics Anonymous, and we have a fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. Two different things. Now, in 1939, the program in the book Alcoholics Anonymous and the program in the fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous were exactly the same because the first 100 put in this book the things necessary for them to do in order to be able to recover from alcoholism. No quarrel between the program and the fellowship and the program and the book. They were exactly the same in 1939. The book began to go out across the country. And the first person in the state of California got a copy of this book, read it, studied it, did what it said, recovered from alcoholism, and started an AA group. First person in Texas did the same thing. First person in Michigan. First person down in Florida. First person in Maryland. All the great growth of the, of the fellowship began to come from the book itself. And then gradually over a period of years, as the fellowship got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, 
they begin to experience something in the fellowship then that the first 100 didn't have. They begin to experience the great strength and power that comes from large numbers of men and women who have joined together and have escaped from a common disaster. The first 100 didn't have that kind of fellowship. Just a few little groups scattered around. No great power through the fellowship itself. But as the fellowship began to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and people began to stay sober based on power of the fellowship, they then began to question the severity of the program in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. They began to say, you know, maybe we don't need to do all these things this book says. Uh, maybe we don't need to turn our entire will and life over to the care of God as we understand it. Maybe we can give Him the alcohol and we'll keep the rest. Uh, do you mean we really, really need to share all of that stuff with another human being? God already knows about it. We already know. Why should we share it with another human being? You mean, you mean we have to get rid of all of our defects of character? Mm. How in the hell will we make a living if we get rid of all of our defects of character? You mean, you mean we've really got to make amends to all those people we've harmed, even those that have harmed us worse than we did then, and we hate their guts? <laughs> and they begin to say, well, maybe we don't need to do all that. Maybe we can treat it as a cafeteria. Maybe we can take what we want, and maybe we can leave what we want. And through that and through the fellowship, we'll be able to stay sober. And slowly, 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 the fellowship began to move away from the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. Then came the great advent of the treatment centers. Now, please don't get us wrong. We have, we have nothing against treatment centers. They serve a very useful, worthwhile purpose. But in most treatment centers, they're going to have to have something in there in order to be able to qualify for state aid and federal aid and etc., they're going to have to have more in there than just the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. So the mental health associations got involved, and we began to bring in the psychologists into the treatment centers and the psychiatrists into the treatment centers. And then people going through the treatment centers began to come into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they wanted to talk about what they had learned in a treatment center, which is normal. Anybody would want to do that. And we begin to hear words and terms in AA that we'd never heard before. We begin to hear first about chemical dependency. Then we begin to hear about dual addiction. And then we begin to hear about polyaddiction. And then we begin to hear about significant others. And, and then we begin to talk about meaningful relationships. <laughs> and then we begin to talk about all kinds of sex and things going on. You know, they begin to talk about everything except what's in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and some, of those, some of those meetings you go to today, they're still out there. And some of those meetings you go to today, if they didn't read the preamble before the meeting, you wouldn't know what kind of meeting you're in. Mm-hmm. Because they talk about everything except alcoholism and recovery therefrom. Now, the instant that happened to us, we went from a life-changing program, which is contained in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous, 
to a non-drinking program. And people then begin to measure success by how long have you been sober rather than by the quality of that sobriety. And you see a lot of people in AA today has been sober several years. But I wouldn't give you 13 cents for the quality of their sobriety. They're always mad and upset and raising hell with everybody. They're staying sober, but they haven't changed their lives. And AA originally was founded as a lifetime changing program that came to us through the Oxford groups and always brought God into the picture so we could make the changes necessary to not only just stay sober, but to be able to completely recover from that condition known as alcoholism. Now what we're going to talk about this weekend is we're not going to talk about the program and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. We're going to talk about the program in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And thank God the program in the book Alcoholics Anonymous has never been changed from the time it first appeared in the first edition in 1939. It's the same today as it was in 39. And it works just as good today as it did in 39. And the people who, who use this program, their lives actually change. They don't just stop drinking. They become entirely different people. Joe? I was down at the club a few months ago, and there was an old fellow. There was 30 people there talk, uh, having a meeting. I guess it was a meeting. But uh, they had some kind of a meeting, and I was there to meet somebody. 30 people for one hour. This one guy talked for about 30 minutes of that hour. You know him. You've seen him. <laughs> My old-timer friend there was named Dick. I punched Dick. I said, Dick, what's he talking about? He said, I don't know. He never says. <laughs> Many years ago, I called my sponsor, Franklin. I said, Franklin, my program is not working worth a darn. And he said, Joe, tell me what your, about your program. I said, well, I'm mad at the people in the group, and I'm mad at my wife, and I'm mad at the people I work with, and I'm pretty well mad everywhere. And he said, well, Joe, your program is working just the way it was designed to work. He said, have you ever tried working the program? And there's a lot of difference between my program and the program. And thank God we're going to talk about the program today. Now let's look at see some of the successes that they were having when the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous were working the program from the book called Alcoholics Anonymous. Let's see the kind of success that they were having. Roman Nuba, page 19, XXIX, the very last line. He said, while the internal difficulties of our adolescent period were being ironed out, Public acceptance of AA grew by leaps and bounds. For this, there were two principal reasons. The large number of recoveries and reunited homes. These made their impressions everywhere. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sobered once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. Other thousands came to a few AA meetings at first decided they didn't want the program. But great numbers of these, about two out of three, began to return as time passed. If my math is correct, that's 75% of those people ultimately stayed sober who came to Alcoholics Anonymous. We and really tried. And really tried. We can't even fantasize about 75% today, and not in my area. I don't know about up here. 50%? No way. 25%? 
Don't think so. Ten? Less than ten? Five, maybe? I don't know. But I do know this, and I've seen this with my own eyes. I saw it the other night over Thomas's group. When people are applying this program to their life out of this book, the recovery rate goes up. And our people are happy about it. And we've got pockets of those people all over the country. And the movement is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you guys are part of the movement. And all we're asking for you to do is to take this book and the knowledge you gain from this book back to your group and share it with your group and see if we can get that recovery rate to start coming back up. I believe we can do that for sure. I've seen it happen. There's a little pamphlet in AA right there. Thank you. Everybody ought to have one. Everybody ought to read one. It was written by Bill Wilson and published in February 1958. Good information in there for everybody in Alcoholics Anonymous. But right here on the third page, right up there, I'm going to read what it says. It said, Sobriety, freedom from alcohol, through the teaching and practice of the 12 steps, is the sole purpose of an AA group. Now, what do you say? Sobriety, freedom from alcohol, through the teaching and practice of the 12 steps, is the sole purpose of an AA group. It's not just one of the purposes. It's the only purpose in the world to have an AA group, to practice and teaching of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Bill Wilson said that right here. It's not to sit around and talk about group therapy, is it? You know, I think I can truthfully say today... That 75% of the people that come to AA today and really try the program in the book Alcoholics Anonymous recover from alcoholism. Now, that doesn't mean 75% of them are doing it. But those that are doing it recover from alcoholism. And why aren't the others doing it? Because nobody's telling them they need to. You know, the old-timers are saying, well, those guys come out of treatment and they want to talk about everything except alcoholism and we don't want to talk about their kind of stuff and we're just going to stay home. And when the old timer does that, they abdicate their responsibility for AA and turn it over to the sickest of the sickest who are the newcomers and then they stand back and say, look what they're doing to our AA. (laughs) That's our responsibility. Mine and yours. Okay? Another thing they didn't know in the early days is people today can go to a meeting three or four times a day. We stay sober on the fellowship and leave the program in the book. There's a lot of power in the fellowship. I know a lot of people have to go to meeting every single day, two or three times to stay sober. Well, thank God they're able to do that. But I couldn't do that, you see. Is that all the preaching we're going to do, Charlie? That's all the preaching. No more preaching. (laughs) Hope you don't believe that. Now that we know just a little bit about it, let's, uh, let's look at the table of contents. And we're going to put a little picture up here on the screen. And in your little handout pamphlet you got when you registered, you have a copy of these pictures also. And if you can't see them too good from the back of the room, you've got them right there in front of you. And we, we, we studied this book for quite some time until we began to realize that the book was really written to convey those three basic ideas that we've been talking about. Or you might say it's really written to, to reach three goals. And the first goal in this book is, what is the problem? 
You know, before you can recover from anything, you've got to understand what the problem really is. And prior to uh, Dr. Silkworth coming along in the 1930s, nobody ever understood the problem of alcoholism. They all thought it was willpower, moral character, sin, and etc. And very, very few alcoholics ever recovered from it. So this idea, this, these ideas from Dr. Silkworth, meant so much to Bill Wilson and so much to the first 100 people that when I got ready to write this book back in 1937, the first 40 did then, turned out to be 100 by 39, they went to the doctor and they said, we would like to take this information that you, you have given to us and, and put it in this book with your permission. And he said, well, that'll be fine if you want to do that. And they said, would you be willing to write some of this information for us? And he said, yes, I would be glad to, with one provision. You can't use my name in it. He says, this is absolute heresy as far as the medical profession is concerned. They don't want to believe the fact that it's an illness. And if you put my name on it, they'll throw me out of the medical profession just as sure as anything. So in the first 16 printings of the big book, it just says the doctor's opinion, dash, dash, dash. No, no Dr. Silkworth in it. Now, in 1956 and 57, the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, had recognized alcoholism as a full-blown disease. And when they came out with a second edition in 1955, Dr. Silkworth said, you can put my name in it now. <laughs> So the second edition, third edition, and fourth editions always got Dr. Silkworth's name in it. Didn't have it in the first edition, though. And uh, so we, we, think, we think there's primarily two, two chapters in the big book that's going to be able to show us what the problem really is. And first is the doctor's opinion. And there we get the same information that he conveyed to Bill Wilson. Then in chapter 1, Bill's story, we're going to be have an example, a classic example of a guy, of a, of a practicing alcoholic, and we're going to be able to see his craving that developed in his body after he took a drink. We're going to be able to see his obsession of the mind. We're going to be able to see primarily everything we need to know to understand the problem in the doctor's opinion and Bill's story. We'll pick some of it out of chapter 2 and 3, but most of it, the doctor's opinion and Bill's story. And there we're going to be able to see that we are absolutely powerless over alcohol. And we might just, for the time being, boil step one down to one word. We're powerless. We're going to be able to see why and how we're powerless through that part of the book. And that's really dealing with step one. Now, if we are powerless over alcohol, then obviously the answer would lie within power. And we got three chapters that are designed to show us that power and the need for that power that is greater than human power. Chapter 2, chapter two there is a solution. And he's going to talk to us about the power of the fellowship and the power of the vital spiritual experience to help us overcome alcoholism. Chapter 3 is going to talk more about alcoholism. 
And he's going to explain to us exactly what's going to happen to us if we don't find that power. Because he's going to talk about the insanity of alcoholism and how it will return if we don't find that power. And then also he's going to show us some ideas, new ideas about that power. In chapter 4, we agnostics. One of the greatest pieces of spiritual information I ever read. Let me discard some old ideas about God and then start operating on some new ideas and let God prove to me that there is a kind and a loving God rather than hell, fire, and brimstone. So chapters 2, 3, and 4 are all going to deal with power, and that's step 2. Can you believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity? If our problem is powerless, if the answer lies within power, then we just need to know one more thing. How do you find that power? And we've got three chapters. Chapter 5, how it works. Chapter 6, into action. Chapter 7, working with others. That shows us how to find that power. And there we're going to find the last ten steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Steps 3 through 12. And we get through with those, then we have found the power, and we can recover from alcoholism. You know, when I first started reading this book, I had no idea that it was written in a certain sequence to convey certain ideas. I read it more or less as you read a novel. I read Bill's story, and I kind of agreed with it a little bit, but not a hell of a lot. I read chapter 2, There is a Solution, and I sure didn't want any part of that because that talked about God. I read chapter 3, and it talked about insanity, and I knew I wasn't crazy. And I read how it works, and I sure as hell didn't want to do those things. And then I'd go back in the back of the book, and I'd read a story, and that was kind of interesting. I'd just jump back and forth, around and around. But if we begin to look at this book as laid out in a certain sequence to convey these ideas in the same sequence that the first 100 had to know them, what is the problem, what is the solution, and what is the program of action, then it becomes a very fascinating book because you'll be able to see how one chapter ties to the next chapter, how one paragraph ties to the next paragraph, giving us these ideas as we go through to bring about these three different ideas or these three main goals of the big book. In the doctor's opinion, one of the most important chapters in the book, the first 16 printings of the of the the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, you can check it out, but looking over here, it was on page one. It wasn't in the Roman numeral section. 1955, for some unknown reason. We don't know why or how. They took the doctor's opinion off of page one, put it in the Roman numeral section, and put Bill's story on page one. And the fellowship got away from the doctor's opinion. But this book is laid out, like Charlie said, in a certain sequence to bring about certain ideas. I was in the printing business. I owned a printing company that printed books like this. I've sat in on many, many conversations about the way to lay out a book. And I didn't think this book was laid out in any particular manner. <laughs> After all, a bunch of old drunks wrote it, so what would they know about a book? The way I figured. I was very open-minded, you see. <laughs> Come to find out, it's laid out. In a pers- they had a lot of good professional help doing this. As Charlie said, and I believe this, every paragraph and every chapter is right where it's supposed to be that leads us to the next and to the next and to the next. Been pretty much the way Bill received it himself.
His first experience with getting sober was with Dr. Silkworth, the doctor's opinion. He learned through sharing with Dr. Bob about his story. And so he shares his, his story for identification so that we can identify with another alcoholic. He gives us these solutions. There is a solution. Most of us are not going to like that solution any more than he did. Remember, he was aghast, that solution. So it tells us more about alcoholism, more about what's going to happen to us unless we accept that solution. And he gives us chapter 4, probably one of the most important chapters ever written, I believe. The chapter, We Agnostics. Gnostic means knowledge. You put the ag in front of any word, it means without. Those are us who are without knowledge. And certainly that's what I had. And the knowledge that I did have was that of a seven-year-old boy when I arrived here. And you can imagine what it was. I needed some more information, better information that I had. Then it tells us how it works. Into action, not into thinking. (laughs) Don't think, please don't think. (laughs) Into action. Then once we've had this experience and recovered, then we can work with other people. We can carry this message to other people. And back on page 45, it said the main object of this book was enable me to find a power greater than myself which would solve my problem. Didn't say it would help me solve my problem. I find the power and the power would solve the problem. And that's the way the book is written. Just that way for us to do those things in that, in that order. Okay, now let's go to Roman numeral 11, XI. And let's look at this second paragraph for just a moment. A couple of ideas here. He said, because this book has become the basic text for our society and has helped such large numbers of alcoholic men and women to recovery, there exists a sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. Therefore, the first portion of this volume describing the AA recovery program has been left untouched in the course of revision made for both the second and the third editions, and now the fourth. The section called The Doctor's Opinion has been kept intact just as originally written in 1939 by the late Dr. William D. Silkworth, our society's great medical benefactor. Okay, a couple of little ideas. Because this book has become the basic text for our society. And when I see the word text, I think I'm alerted to the kind of book that I have in front of me. Now, many of us remember textbooks from school. Every time I used to be in high school, they'd talk about a textbook. For some reason, I'd think about cheating. I don't know why that was. <laughs> Many of us didn't like the idea of textbooks because that means you've got to study and you've got to take tests and the possibility of failure and all that kind of work. But a textbook really is nothing more than a way to convey information from the mind of one human being or a group of human beings through the written word to the mind of another human being, thereby increasing the knowledge of the user of the textbook. A textbook is usually assumes that the reader of the book will know very little about the subject matter. It usually starts at a very simple level. Then as the knowledge of the reader increases, the information presented becomes more difficult. You know, we're all familiar with the textbook on mathematics. And let's say that my friend Joe here knows nothing at all about mathematics. He can't add, he can't subtract, he can't do any of those things. Oh, he can count. Uh, He could probably count to 21 if he's standing there naked and got everything where it's supposed to be. He might make 21. 20 and a half, actually. 
And I hand Joe a textbook on mathematics, and I say, I want you to go to chapter 5 and work the algebra problems. Well, he'll go to chapter 5, but he just sees a bunch of marks on paper. He has no idea what that means. But if I say to Joe, Joe chapter 1 deals with addition and subtraction, the value of numbers, addition and subtraction. If you'll read that chapter and study it and ask questions and let me help you, by the time you're through with chapter 1, you'll be able to add and subtract. And sure enough, he learns how to do that. And I say, now that you know how to do that, how to add and subtract, now then you can go to chapter 2 and you can learn how to multiply and divide. And he does that. And then I say, now you can go to chapter 3 and you can learn about fractions and decimals. And he does that. And we gradually prepare his mind for the algebra problems in chapter 5. I think one of the greatest mistakes I see being made in AA today, a newcomer comes in, we hand them the big book, we say go to chapter 5 and do what it says, and you'll be okay. That's what they told me when I first came to AA. And the newcomer goes to chapter 5, and immediately they run into a bunch of algebra problems. They run into the 12 steps. And step one said, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Our lives had become unmanageable. The newcomer said, man, I ain't powerless over nothing. They have no idea what we're talking about. Step two says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Newcomer said, man, don't tell me I'm crazy. Sure, I do stupid things when I'm drunk, but when I'm sober, I'm like other people. They have no idea what we mean by that statement. If you're not powerless and you're not nuts, then you don't need to be thinking about turning your will and life over to the care of something you don't understand in the first place. And we present them with an impossible situation. If we can do nothing else at all this weekend, I hope we can be able to see the value of the doctor's opinion and the first four chapters. The doctor's opinion and the first four chapters, they teach us how to add and subtract. They teach us how to multiply and divide. They teach us about the fractions and decimals. And they prepare us for chapter 5 because you see chapter 5 starts with step 3. And it's hard to start with 3 unless you've got 1 and 2 behind you. Standard textbook theory. Standard textbook sequence. Presenting it in, 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 a, in a sequence, increasing our knowledge with each chapter until we're ready then for chapter 5 when we get to it. It's amazing the writers of this book thought so much of steps 1 and 2 that they used the doctor's opinion in the first four chapters to explain steps 1 and 2. Very important. The other thing that's so important here is there's this to set up again a sentiment, a sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. You know, this book here, the recovery section of the book, the first edition, the recovery section of the second edition, the recovery section of the third edition, and the recovery section of the fourth edition has never been changed. They're exactly the same. And I think that's the greatest miracle in Alcoholics Anonymous today. You know how we love to change things. And anybody that's ever read this book has rewritten it in their mind at least twice. But collectively, we've never found it necessary to change the recovery section of this book. <clears throat> I wonder why. Anybody want to venture an idea? Does it work? It works, doesn't it? It works just as good today as it did in 1939. Why? 
Three reasons. Number one, alcoholics have not changed. (laughs) They're doing the same thing today they did in 1939. They get into jailhouses. They get into car wrecks. They get into hospitals. They get into divorce courts. They get into insane asylums. Call them treatment centers today, the insane asylum. (laughs) And they get into graveyards. They're still doing the same fun things today that they did in 1939. Haven't changed a lick. Alcohol hasn't changed. It's the same today as it was in 1939. The names have changed. The bottles have changed. The colors have changed. I saw one not long ago called Peach Fuzz. (laughs) I wondered what in the hell is Peach Fuzz? But if it had alcohol in it, it'll make you drunk as sure as anything. Human nature never changes. It's the same today as it was thousands of years ago. And that's what this book really deals with. It deals with alcoholism. It deals with alcohol. And it deals with human nature. And therefore, it works just as good today as it did in 1939. Never found it necessary to change it at all. Let's go to the forward of the first edition for just a moment. Roman numeral 13. And it says, I, I, I. And it says, we. There's that great big word in Alcoholics Anonymous, we. We can do what I cannot do. We can help me stay sober, which I couldn't do. Big word. We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body to different things. Later on tonight, we're going to separate the body from the mind and talk about them in great detail. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered it is the main purpose of this book. And anytime you see italic, Charlie calls it squiggly writing, but don't let him throw you. It's, it is italic. Anytime you see italic in this book, it means it's very, very important. We ought to read, read it again and consider what it's trying to say, say to us. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. We see words like precisely, specifically, exactly, with clear-cut directions on how to recover from alcoholism. Now, this is not a book going to tell us just about how to recover from it. It's going to tell us precisely, specifically, exactly, with clear-cut directions on how to recover. And if I do that the way they say, then I should expect to be able to recover from alcoholism. For them, we hope these pages will prove so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary. We think this account of our experience will help everyone better understand the alcoholic. Many do not comprehend that the alcoholic is a very sick person. And besides, we're sure that our way of living has its advantages for all. Two little ideas out of there. Number one, we are more than 100 men and women. Most books I read have been authored by one person. And I read a book authored by one person if I see something there I don't agree with. I say, well, who in the hell are they to think they're smarter than I am? And I just ignore it. But if I do it with a big book, I'm not going to be arguing with one person. I'm going to be arguing with 100 people. The first 40 said, Bill, we want you to write the book. You've been sober longer than anybody else. You know more about it than anybody else does. But they said, Bill, this is not to be your book, it's to be our book. And as you write those chapters, we want to see them. And we'll add to, delete from, and change around whatever we want to. When we're through with it, it'll be the collective knowledge, experience, and wisdom of all 40 of us, which turned out to be 100 
by the time the book was published in 1939. So if I'm going to argue with what this book has to say today, I've got to remember I'm not arguing with one person. I'm arguing with 100 people. And these 100 people have recovered from the same thing that's killing me, a hopeless state of mind and body. That brings in the word recovered. And we hear fights all over the world. Is it recovered or recovering? Can you really recover from alcoholism? Well, I hope you can. Because if we can't, we're going to be in bad, bad shape, aren't we? Before I came to AA, I lived in a hopeless state of mind and body. I could not keep from drinking, nor could I drink without getting drunk. And I almost destroyed me under that condition. I came to AA and I got sober and I worked this program. Now, I no longer live in that hopeless state of mind and body. I cannot safely drink alcohol, but by golly, I can stay sober. And I don't live in that hopeless state of mind. Remember now, we do not want you sharing your gossip, but we would love for you to pause your device and share that episode with a friend or family member. It may be just what they need today. As a reminder, I I mentioned it on the front of this episode, but there was a hard stop there, and we're going to continue that the next time we get back together with Joe and Charlie. I mean, not like physically, but like next time. Uh, how do I, the next time I release one of their episodes. Now, if I am actually getting together with Joe and Charlie, you're going to have another host for this episode (laughs) since they are no longer with us. And I will be at the big meeting in the sky, enjoying it up there. But nonetheless, now on to a little bit of listener feedback. Barry from across the pond writes in and the title of the subject line is hear ye hear ye and that's exactly why I actually started this episode on the beginning of it for those of you who may have noticed with hear ye hear ye hear ye hear ye I not use that in quite some time but anyway Barry says well tally ho John M me old bozo Hello, uh, Barry. He says, just checking in on ya to ensure our old friend Mr. Omicron has left the building. Well, let me tell you, and I told you this in an email, Barry, uh, I would say that I'm 95% of of the way there. I had six to seven full weeks of uh, Mr. Omicron, Mr., as you called him on the last email, Mr. C-19, and, um, but uh, I had a, a it went, and it was the fatigue that got me, right? And, and I'm sure there are tons of other people who have been through this. I know you have, Barry, as well, uh, but I had six to seven full weeks of that fatigue, and I thought, oh man, is this ever going to go away? But uh, uh, the fatigue has... left the building. I still have some, I just, I can tell it's just still hanging around, but overall I am good and I appreciate you checking in. And then Barry says, London has been so hot recently. It's felt like the inside of an Alabama barbecue pit. (laughs) 
<laughs> that, that is hot. Man, I'm sorry you're going through that. Uh, by the way, Barry, uh, I don't think I told you this, um, but we have, and this is for everybody listening. You don't have to tune out just because I'm talking to Barry right now. But we have a guest from uh, uh, London uh, coming on very soon. Uh, I really did enjoy talking to him. And I, I know y'all, y'all, everyone, y'all are going to enjoy it as well. Anyway, Belty, uh, uh, Barry says the world is melting politically, geographically, economically, and ethically, yet we still remain sober using a simple program united together on the back of the bus <laughs> sober speak tribe stay alive and then he always has this uh smiley face with a cowboy hat on it so anyway thanks for reaching out Barry Tony writes in Tony C and he says, hi, John, I just wanted to let you know, I really appreciate you doing this podcast. I listen all day at work and it's really helpful. I relapsed on Saturday after 85 days of being sober and I have had a lot uh, of relapses in my story, but your podcast is helping me to remember that there is hope. Thank you. Yes, there is hope, Mr. Tony. Uh, for all of us, uh, and we're all, my friend, one day, one drink away, one moment away uh, from just where you are. So just get back up on that ho- uh, that horse and ride it. Godspeed to you, my friend. Quang, uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Hi, John. I'm Quang, and it's pronounced K-W-O-N, Quan. Thank you. Sorry about that, Quan. Uh, I'm Quan. I am a construction worker. I listen to your podcast while at work instead of music now. Because of the podcast, I realize I don't know the program. So I got a sponsor, and I'm on step three with 197 days sober and clean today. I'm an alcoholic and an alcohol. I'm an alcoholic and an addict, and I love your podcast, Quan. That's fantastic, my friend. Good to know you are on the path, so to speak. And I'm so thankful as to everybody who writes in. I'm so thankful that you, uh, and for all of you listening in right now, that you allow me to be a small part of your journey. Uh, it just it just melts my heart, and I'm so happy for you, Guam. Terry writes in, and she says, Hi, John. First things first, or first off, This is going to be a long message. Just a warning. No problem. Here we go. She said, I listened to both of Billy Kay's episodes and I am in big capital letters completely blown out of my socks and running shoes. (laughs) Well, good. I'm glad you specified the kind of shoes you were wearing. Uh, she says, I so got what she was saying on so many levels. I absolutely hung on to every word and my quote, not so humble opinion, unquote. I truly believe that Billy Kay could very easily become the Bill Wilson of Al-Anon. Her descriptions of the parallels of the two programs are phenomenal. She put in pig, big capital letters. 
Early in sobriety, I was listening to some Joe and Charlie tapes. Hey, we just did Joe and Charlie. This is great. And I heard them talk of how the alcoholics, how an alcoholic's body processes alcohol differently than non-alcoholics. Then they describe the chemical reaction that triggers the phenomenon of craving we suffer from. Being the wannabe scientist that I am with just enough chemistry background to be dangerous. <laughs> I completely understood what Joe and Charlie were saying. I was finally able to understand in part what makes me completely unable to stop drinking whenever I consume even a drop of alcohol. When I heard Billy Kay describe how a similar type of chemical reaction within the body of the Al-Anon can be happening regarding adrenaline and endorphins that stop me in my tracks, completely jaw dropping, she said in big capital letters. At least, uh, at least to this here, quote, double winner, unquote, I hope to hear more from her and will check out the deep dive 12-step programs she mentioned and that are posted at the end of the podcast. I also intend to reach out to her and find out more. Spoken like the true Alki that I am, there just ain't enough, right? <laughs> Question mark. Thank you so much for your service, John. Both, uh, both of you, and all the other speakers on the pod. I love it. I've been listening since the beginning of the pandemic. Big shout out to you and Billy K. God bless Terry B. Sobriety date one nineteen January nineteenth of two thousand eleven. Well, thank you. Uh, and as you know, I got you in touch with Billy Kay. Uh, hopefully, uh, you guys can continue the conversation on your own. Thank you so much, Terry B. Les writes in and Les says, good morning. So my 29 year, so 29 years ago, my 15 year old son stood at the door of our apartment and said, if I didn't call a friend I knew was in the rooms, then she was going to be taking my youngest and herself and going to her dad's. So I called my old partner in crime who I knew was already two years clean and sober. And she said, get on your knees and say the alcoholic prayer. Three little words. So I did. God help me. I remember it was a Sunday morning and I had to wait for my friend until she came for me around 7.30 p.m. The meeting was at 8 o'clock p.m. And I didn't know how the speaker, I didn't know uh, who the speaker or how the speaker, excuse me. Uh, oh, I didn't know how the speaker knew who I was by telling my story. John, it would take me many more emails to give you the whole journey. The minute my father kicked me out and I tasted alcohol and shot the first needle into my veins, I was in a whole new dimension. And for the next six years or so, I lived anywhere I could, robbing, hurting people, gambling, selling drugs, hanging out with gangsters or rounders, as we called them in the late 60s and 70s, coach, excuse me, couch surfing, just always wanting more of it all. I was raised a very strict Catholic. When I came into AA, I didn't know uh, how or if I could accept this God thing, because of course, he was a punisher. 
But now my life has been turned into this power greater than me. I will be 70 years young in October, and the next July 10th will have 30 years. But for the grace of God, good for you. That's fantastic, Les. Um, oh, I lost my place. Uh, but for the grace of God. I have two beautiful daughters and two amazing grandsons and two awesome grand doggies. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen that word written out before. Grand doggies. The the journey has not always been easy, but it was worth it. Anyway, as you know, we drunks can talk for hours. (laughs) I'll share more at another time. God bless you and keep you until then. Oh, I found Sober Speak on iHeartRadios. Love it. Listen to it while I'm doing chores. Well, I hope you're listening to this while you're doing some chores there, Les. Uh, And I have been on Zoom meetings the last two years and been to maybe two in-person meetings because I am a high risk and actually just had COVID-19 as a few did in my family. Continue doing what you're doing as it helps many. Much love and respect regards Les in Kitchener, Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Well, thank you, Les, and much love and respect back at you in Kitchener, Ontario. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. My friend Jim writes in, and Jim says, Hi, John. I just got just a quick note, my friend. He says, First, for the divine Mrs. M, I'm set the divine Mrs. M. <laughs> I like that, Jim. I usually call her the, what do I call her? Mrs. M, the uh, the lovely Mrs. M, but I like that, the divine Mrs. M. I may stick with that, Jim. But he says, I'm sorry to hear about her continuing medical issues from the accident. And then he put up a pair of uh, uh, prayer emoji and some, and, uh, some flowers emojis. Uh, I'm keeping her in my prayers and all of the Mrs. Uh, oh, oh, and, and all of the family. Okay, even the lizard. <laughs> and then he says, watch out for those, opio- those opioid prescribing doctors. Yes, yeah, so um, what Jim, just for those of you who don't know what Jim's talking about, the lovely Mrs. M or the divine uh, Mrs. M got into a major car accident. And today as I'm recording this, so we... This is about four weeks out from her accident, and we just went to the grocery store, me and her together, for the first time in four weeks. The main issue that she continues to have is she have a has a buckled sternum, and uh, it causes some pain, uh, but it's getting a little better every day. I think she's going to be okay long term, uh, but thank you for all of that, Jim. I appreciate it. And, and the opioids are fine in our house so far. And I know what you're talking about. What Jim means is there's been a lot of people who get in uh, accidents. The doctors prescribe some uh, uh, opioids and then uh, people never get off them. And uh, it turns into a bad situation. And so anyway, if you're in one of those situations, it may be something to watch out for as well. Anyway, and then he says, second, Billy Kay. And we have another uh, email about Billy Kay. Wow, what a great insight and wise talk. I've already forwarded it to three people and told another guy in the meeting about it this morning. And I haven't even listened to all of it yet. 
Third, I just remembered that you, that once or twice you mentioned attending an AA conference in Colorado that was family focused. Well, I'm going to Fellowship of the Spirit in Estes Park in Colorado next weekend. Any chance you will be there, maybe not because of the accident, but I hope you are here and I can get some time with you, dinner maybe, let me know. And on that, gym, the actual conference that I have attended is the Crestabue Conference. And you know, we decided to go somewhere else this year. We went to Florida and uh, to go to the beach and I don't know, decided to do something different, but I am actually regretting that decision. I wish that I had gone to uh, 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 Crested Butte instead, but we didn't. But anyway, I'm sure you will have fun at the Fellowship of the Spirit Conference. I believe the only difference between those is that the the Crested Butte Conference is more, I guess what you would call AA focus with uh, Al-Anon as well. And I think that the Fellowship of the Fellowship of the Spirit Conference is more uh uh, Al-Anon focus with AA added on. So, uh, and, but they're both family oriented and very good conferences. Well, from what I hear, I hope you have a good time. And then he says, fourth, uh, new news. I am in a wonderful zoom meeting many mornings a week. It's called Roho recovery. So it's a uh, 8 a.m. Uh, Monday through Friday. And I found it because you had Bob B on Sober Speak last year through Roho Recovery. I have made many guy friends in the program throughout the USA. And I will see some of them next week at the Fellowship of the Spirit Conference. Love you, brother. It would be so cool if you and your family are in Colorado so I can say hi in person. Jim S. With Jim S., as I've already explained, I'm not going to be there, but love back at you, my friend. And thank you for being uh, such a supporter for all these years. And I'm I'm just happy for you that you uh, are on, you have, you're on the right path. And I can tell, and I'm just, I'm, I'm glad that, that uh, even though you stumbled like I did, you got back up on that horse and started to ride it again. God bless you, my friend. Mara, Mara, M-A-U-R-A, however you say it. I think it's Mara. Mara, anyway, writes in. Mara writes in, and she also is speaking about Billy Kay. So if you haven't listened to the episodes with Billy Kay, obviously it would be suggestion. It would be suggested. She says, greeting, Johns. I heard Billy Kay today. I have been an Allen on my entire adult life, a double winner. And she is hands down the most practical uh, informative speaker I have ever heard when it comes to working at Al-Anon program. She also told my stories in many ways. Thanks for all you do, John, Mara. Well, thank you, Mara. And uh, you're right. Billy Kay is absolutely fabulous. Is this my last one? No, I got a couple more to go. Well, hold on just a second here, folks. I'm going to take a little uh, a sip of coffee. It's not spiked with anything, I promise. Hold on just a sec. All right, a little sip of coffee to get me to the last couple here. Jess writes in, and Jess M writes in, and she says, Hi, John, I live in M.A. And for those of you not from the United States, that is the state of Massachusetts. 
And if you ever go to the Massachusetts state, they will say things like, I park the car and things like that, just in case you ever make it out to Massachusetts and you, you know, you're living in Australia or something right now. Anyway, so he says, my original sobriety date was June 13th of 2013. I have not had a drink since that day. However, uh oh, there's a however. Last year, I got my medical marijuana license. Uh oh, I think I know where this is going. To be honest, I got it because my husband got his, and I was jealous, and I was also sick of being on meds for anxiety. I thought since marijuana was legal, if I just took. CBD gummies, that would be okay, since CBD does not get you high. Side note, my doctor knew and was on board with this. I was able to get the CBD gummies and the medical uh, until the medical dispensaries I went to didn't have, quote, just the C- CBD gummies, but they did have one-to-ones. I ended up taking taking those. In case you don't know what a one is, one-to-one is, it's half CBD and half THC, and then took just THC gummies. After I first took them, I knew I probably shouldn't have taken them again, but I did. I started coming home from work and uh, from work and making sure I didn't have to go anywhere. So until so I took a uh, excuse me, making sure I didn't have to go anywhere so I could take a gummy. I realized a few weeks later I really should not be taking them, so I threw them away. After I asked someone else in recovery if they thought I w- it was a relapse, he said, "No, you didn't relapse." And so I chose to believe him. But for me, I knew I had. Funny how that little voice inside talks to us, right? The reason I'm telling you this is because I never stopped going to meetings. I was sponsoring women at the time. I also had a sponsor and I was working the steps. Nothing had outwardly changed about my AA program. But I have felt disconnection with God. Ah. Uh, that makes sense. I had failed to truly enlarge my spiritual life. I have had I have had a morning routine every morning now for years. I meditate, read the 24-hour book and uh, daily reflections and I read affirmations. Every so often during my morning routine I would come across reading the a uh, reading in the AM about secrets. And that situation would come up for me immediately, but I pushed it down and said to myself, no, you have almost nine years of sobriety. You did not relapse. My ego would not let me admit I relapsed. Finally, it happened again. I knew I could pretend it never happened. Uh, I was lying to myself and everyone else. I called my sponsor and told her, I think I relapsed. She said, well, if you think you did, then you did. I immediately regretted calling. (laughs) I'm sorry. I know this is serious in some way, but that would have been me too. Why did I call her? I immediately regretted calling her, but at the same time, (laughs) I felt a weight lift off my shoulders. I felt unblocked. 
from God. I sent messages to my AA peeps telling them and surprisingly had to have quite a few discussions with people, which I had to convince them it was a relapse. My new sobriety date is now 11-16-21. I just picked up my eight-month chip. I have to tell you, I felt so much shame. Relapse was not part of my story. I no longer say no shame when people get their 24-hour chips. Instead, I say no judgment. It's hard not to beat myself up. I will continue to pray on that. I first started listening to Sober Speak while in my car on the way to an extended school year teaching job for the summer. I listen every morning and afternoon. The first episode I heard from Sober Speak was Sandy Beach's God is Everything. It changed my life, John. I listened to that episode nonstop for about two days, and I wrote some of his stuff down that really stuck with me. It is now part of my morning routine and helps to remind me the only thing which detaches me from God is the, quote, story I make up in my head that tells Tells me I exist separately from him, unquote. I like that. I love the line when he said, and I think it came from somewhere, to serve in heaven or reign in hell. I had a spiritual awakening listening to that episode for the first time in a while. I felt God. We are BFFs now. <laughs> Well, good. I've listened to many more episodes and recently began listening to the podcast, starting to with episode one. Wow, that's going back. I apologize for the incredibly long email. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Big smiley face. Take care and God bless you, really. Jess M. Well, Jess M. from John M. I appreciate all that and thanks for the... A story of, I guess, warning uh, to those out there who may be listening. Matthew writes in and he says, Hey, John, I'm still in the beginning of my recovery process and every day is a challenge, but I'm tired of lying to myself and to those around me. I started to drink heavily when I was in the Marine Corps and back then, I didn't see it as a problem at all. It was just something that everyone did. It was part of our culture. By the time I got out of the Marines, alcohol was a huge part of my life. I relied on it as my only source of relief from the issues in my life. I kept lying to myself saying the alcohol was the antidote to my problems. Now, after a couple of years of this behavior, I can now see how my alcohol use has made me lose my sense of self and has made me feel like a fraud around my friends and family. I'm tired of it. I understand that I'm powerless and I have listened and I have started to be honest and accountable with myself. Something I have not done in a long time. I found Sober Speak a couple of months ago while browsing on Spotify. I listen I like to listen to podcasts and was curious if there were any if there were any AA related podcasts, and there it was. I love listening to Bob S. His story was very moving, and although our experiences are very different, it was comforting to hear 
him be able to talk about the things we went through that he went through during his time in the Marines. Thank you so much for everything you do, John. The platform has helped me greatly and is encouraging to hear all the incredible stories. I appreciate everything you do. Take care, Matthew J. All right, everybody, that is another one in the books, in the can, I guess is what they call it in the kind of radio podcast biz. I'm not real sure, but nonetheless, um, keep coming back. It works if you work it. I take this one week at a time. I hope to be back with you folks next week. May God bless you and keep you until then. Be well.